Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We now return to Two Girls, One Podcast, the show that millions around the world listen to for parenting advice. Yes, we know it's every parent's dream for their child to grow up and become an adult baby TikTok influencer. And now here are your hosts, who are parents to many plants, Lindsay Ford and Allison Goldberg. What up, what up, everybody? It's me, Lindsay. And I'm Allie. And this is Two Girls, One Podcast. Welcome, friends. We're glad you're here as society crumbles. Yeah, it's still crumbling, y'all. Um, Active crumble. Yeah, yeah. I just like to say society is constantly in a decay. And today, currently, we're just like very aware of it. So mm-hmm. if that makes you feel better, good. But uh, it shouldn't because it is worse actively now than like i think we had it best in like 2009 <laughs> oh my god those were good years peak peak america uh, yeah because we still had hope things were still shit but we still had hope and abortion <laughs> <laughs> y'all i uh i have a good high school friend and i texted him this morning you don't live in highland park now do you because they recently in the in the pandemic they bought a house and moved to the burbs and he said i do and we were at the shooting <gasps> so oh, wow oh my god also highland park is not the burbs it, they, they were in like the city proper and they moved to highland park yeah mm. dang that's so upsetting yeah and so then i was like only in america did i just spend my morning thinking what do i send my friend who was in a shooting And then I spent 30 minutes trying to get weed delivered because I thought that was a good option. Mm -hmm. But Illinois, you don't do weed delivery yet. And I'm upset about it. And um, then I tried to deliver alcohol. Anyway, I'm still that was this has been my morning. And I just can't even imagine how he is. I was like, how are you doing? And he said, well, we're physically fine, but they have a child. And they were like, now we have to figure out how to help him process this so it doesn't ruin his life. And he's like, I just think about how lucky we were. That we were one block away. Ugh. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I'm angry and I wasn't there. I have nothing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I can't. I'm like, Brian, are you like, are you OK? Like, what is happening? Right. Like, wh- I'm like, are you emotionally OK? But it's like, how do you even answer that? Like, and I just have found it so difficult to like work lately. <laughs> like, <laughs> sit down and write yeah. and focus. Mm-hmm. And like, I have mm-hmm. a, another writing packet due next week and I have to write a bunch of jokes. And like, my jokes are just all coming out pretty dark. Well, it's a dark, dark time. And my first thought was like, it's lucky that your friend was there with their child when they had to experience this, seeing as the leading cause of death for children in America is fucking gun violence. You mean that he was there to pull him away or whatever? or No, just that he was there to be like that the child could be like, I have someone here who is for me to take care of me. I know, but like what a, what a fucked up silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. Children who survive school shootings go on to have problems for the rest of their lives. A lot of kids and kids who were at the school but didn't witness it still have like horrible things. Like they think things like the shooter was there for me and they didn't find Mm -hmm. me. And that's why Mm -hmm. all those other kids died. So it's my Mm -hmm. fault. Survivor's Survivor's guilt. Yeah. But but even more than survivor's guilt, like not like a lot of survivor's guilt is like, why that kid and not me? Am I good enough? Like, what do I need to do with my life to make sure Mm -hmm. I was worthy to live? That's like Mm -hmm. just your average survivor's guilt, which sounds horrible to live Mm -hmm. with. But some Mm -hmm. kids get deep psychosis where they think the shooter was literally there to kill me. 
and they didn't find me. So sometime Mm. in the rest of my life, someone is going to be looking for me to kill me. Yeah, it's like Final Destination. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, here is my question for our listeners. When we need citizenship elsewhere, who is ready to take us in? This is, I now have a serious ulterior motive with this podcast, and I need to know, do we have (laughs) listeners in New Zealand? If you are a listener in New Zealand, um, I'm at Ali underscore Goldie across social media. Please slide into my DMs. I would, Australia also seems great. Truly anywhere with... New Zealand really seems the best. Uh, Canada, I mean, Canada, yes, that's where a lot of American refugees will go. It's too close. But it's pretty cold. Cold and close. close. I don't do winters anymore. Suffering from some of the same uh, neocon situations. It's not as bad as here, but it might be getting... They got got a lot of racism and missing brown women. I'm not like, ooh, Canada. Mm. (laughs) Well, Lindsay, that's going to be a problem everywhere you go. You know what I mean? We got to pick our battles right now. (laughs) Well, sometimes... (laughs) Yes, white lady, you pick your battles and I will pick my battles, which is not to be a missing I know but honestly where are you gonna go that doesn't (laughs) well some places it's just like oh well Lindsay's the only black person in like Dublin Shire will know if she's missing. <laughs> like, you oh, know, so if I'm saying- in Ireland, if I'm in Ireland, there's going to be very few people looking like me. So you're saying go where you're either a majority or such a minority that everybody in town knows who you are. Exactly. Huh. Yes. Yeah. Let's like, hmm. let's right. get to Senegal. Let's get to freaking Reykjavik. Like, you know, like. Okay, wait, here's a, here's a queer, a weird question. But like in America, most places, if a black person's walking down the street, it's hello, it's a, it's a person. But if you go to certain places <laughs> in this person. world, you're you're like I don't know, like a, a like a a fairy godmother or some you're like mm-hmm. an anomaly. Have you ex- yes. you must have experienced this, right? Oh, absolutely. And okay. sometimes it's pleasant. Like I I yeah, bring yeah. up Ireland because it's ve- it's very pleasant. Ireland and Scotland, everyone comes up they're like you're definitely not from here. Where are you from? And <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, and they want to show you everything." And some places they're like you're definitely not from here. What's what happening? are you doing here? Yeah, What's like happening? in Vietnam, places in Vietnam, people are like, ooh, let's go to China. I'm like, I don't think that's a safe fit for me right, personally. Right, um, right. But like in Vietnam, people would just like literally stare at me, like stare right. and wait until like I was about to move and then reach out and touch me just to like <laughs> see if I was real. Right. I was going to say the, the touching, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of... A lot of uh, unsolicited touching, which was wild, but like in a judgmental way, <laughs> like, yeah. I somehow feel judged and like, you know, it's kind of like if you were an X-Man where people are like envious, but also really upset that you're there. Yeah. I had a high school friend who was from Estonia and oh yeah, it was kind of a like it was there was and turns out they were a princess. No, but it was sort of interesting because she was like, <laughs> yeah, when we first came to America and I saw my first black person, she's like, my mind was blown. Right, because she was like eight years old. She'd never seen one, and it was just right. like it was really interesting to hear that perspective where she was just like, there aren't any in Estonia, and I showed up and like, can you imagine? Just like you've never ever ever seen anything but a white person, and then you see a black right. person, and you're like, right. <gasps> Holy shit. Like it wasn't good or bad for her. It was just like, wow. Native Americans seeing white people on horses for the first time. They're like, what fucking aliens? Who came here? What is happening? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I totally see why they would think it's like literal aliens from the sky. Because it's like (laughs) they look like people. I guess there's life on another planet. Like they look like people, but also they look so fucking different. It makes no sense. Yeah. I've traveled a lot with white ladies with long hair, right? Uh So Mm -hmm. I went to Africa in college and all of the children just like descended on my one friend who has a lot of thick, long hair. And they just all started playing with her hair. Like literally (laughs) there were six children surrounding her like just playing with her hair, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a similar thing. I mean, and it would be the same thing if you saw anything that you had never seen that felt familiar, but different. So you yeah. weren't totally. afraid of it. You right. were just like confused of it, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of uh, things that are a little di- bit different and we shouldn't be afraid. I got there. We're looking at a happy subject today, which I'm very excited about, especially since I'm in a mood. And um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we're looking at a group called Plant 
parenthood. And longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of the psychedelics. I'm California sober. I don't drink. I do the drugs. Uh, a strict once a quarter policy. I'm a responsible adult. Ah, yes. California sober. And I think that there's a lot of value in psychedelics. I think they've really been demonized for a lot of reasons. And it's actually fascinating to me that alcohol is the legal drug. Like, I feel like my mm. mind and body are so much more altered when I'm drunk than when I'm on shrooms. Not that I do shrooms because it's not legal in some places, but <laughs> we're going to talk to a group tonight that encourages parents to use psychedelics. And I'm excited about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of kids that would probably be way more palatable if your mind was otherwise, you know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> but that's not my kids. I don't have any kids, but I'm sure my kids will be different. Oh, yeah. Apparently, it also just helps you relate to the children because like children are seeing the world for the first time mm. and they constantly have magical thinking. Yeah. Mm. And it's just like, wow, you know, and everything's like insane and heightened. And, you know, unfortunately, as we get older, we're used to things in our emotions and experiences feel a little duller you have to you have to try harder to seek those thrills whereas kids mm -hmm. just like you know fucking snow they're like holy shit you know <laughs> not even snow bubbles literally every day <laughs> every day a kid will be like this is wild and you're like we used an entire gallon of bubbles yesterday and they're like have you I seen know, these bubbles and there's more <laughs> frankly if I were on shrooms I could probably stare at bubbles for an hour yeah. and not be bored you know so but um, first, trivia. We got to do it. We've got some trivia. Today, we're covering a variety of plants and fungi, I presume, including the shrooms, as as the kids call it, right? You know, I'm happy. Yeah, right? that's exactly yeah. what they call it, the shrooms. The shrooms. Um, I've got a cool shroom to share with you today. It is called Schizophyllum commune or commune, maybe. We'll see. Okay. It's a species of mushroom that looks like coral. It's very beautiful. Uh, it is found throughout the world, wherever you find rotting trees after a rainy season or a rainy time. It's very pretty. It is edible, but it does not have hallucinogenic properties. Boring. It does, however, have one cool feature, okay? It's not gonna get you high, but it's got some cool stuff going on. What is so special about Schizophyllum commune? One of these is true, two I made up. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. A, this mushroom has 23,328 distinct sexes. 23,000 different sexes. What? That's A. This is the best trivia we've ever had. I love plants. I know. <laughs> Get ready. B, it is carnivorous and it will lure frogs, rats, and insects to it with pheromones, poison it, then feast on the rotting carcasses for months at a time. Definitely true. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that's B. C, it is the longest lived fungus known to science with a single organism's lifespan reaching more than 50 years if it is left undisturbed in the right conditions. A 50 year old single mushroom. That is choice C. Which of these is true? The other two I made up. Wow, those are very good. Oh shit, because C could be true too. Yeah, those are very good. I don't know. Well, you said it's edible. So would it be edible if it was also poisonous? That's what I don't know. Oh, ooh, now she's thinking. I don't know. But I feel like, can you read C again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah C. I want to hear C again too. It is the longest lived fungus known currently to science. Uh, so it doesn't mean that evolutionary it goes back. It means that a single organism can live to about 50 years old. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, trees mm -hmm. live a long time. Or not a plant, excuse me, a fungus. Fungus, yeah, fungus, fungus. fungus. Different. Those are different, but, by the way. But it's called schizo, right? Schizophyllum com commune or commune, C-O-M-M-U-N-E. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that. That name almost makes me think that the first one is right. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Ooh, Allie, look at us. Detective. Uh, using our big but brain it's knowledge. it's too many. It's too many. I can't imagine that it's true. That's a lot of sexes. Why Why do you need that many sexes? <laughs> I'm going to go with B because I know that some plants can lure in insects. I haven't heard about rodents. Yes. That that seems very reasonable. Although maybe Matt was like, wait, but it was that they could eat rodents. Maybe Matt was like, I know they can Frogs, eat. Frogs, rats, and insects. I'm going with B. I'm just, but you go with 
B and I'll go with C. I just like to do variety, you know? No, that's good. We, we value diversity here. Yep. Lindsay goes with longest lived uh, single organism, fungus, and Allie goes with carnivorous fungus. That's choice B. We will find out more about the fungus among us after this very <laughs> important commercial break. Us. God, the following people have supported us at the $10 or more level on patreon.com slash 2G1P. And I love them so much. They're beautiful. I wish that they would come to California and do drugs with us. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Wesley Cordell, we are waiting for you. Thank you so much, Jerry Duran. Jessica Fox, did you know your last name is an animal? (laughs) Kathy Phillips, I mean, you have so many bright, shining lights inside of you. Matthew Scott has two first names. Melissa Elliott also has two first names. And William only has one name. Jessica Kybell. Your last name has Bell in it, and that makes me hear bells. Ken M, you are such a fucking weirdo, and I love it. Oh my gosh, and also we can't forget to thank Kelsey Murray. Thank you so much. We can't wait to watch the sunset with you. Patreon.com slash 2G1P. road on the information superhighway entitled please stop cooking from the social network known for perfectly reasonable requests next door courtesy of best of next door please stop cooking I can smell the cooking and it triggers my undiagnosed allergies. Please do not cook your food, but instead opt for foods that do not require cooking, like carrot sticks and grape nut seeds. If cooking is absolutely necessary, please consider the following options. Not cooking, eating food naturally. Wow. I know where that person should move. My friend never cooks. She hates it and is always ordering in. So I mean, she should move to a farm. <laughs> eat raw food off the land. <laughs> the undiagnosed allergies n- might not be great on a farm. Yo, when we all have to move into our bunkers, it's going to be problematic. Mm. <laughs> I'm hoping everyone else moves into the bunker and then I'll have the rest of the planet to myself. Ooh, oh, you inherit yeah, the world. I the guess earth. if everybody becomes a mole person. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's hear about magical plants. Mm. Magical, magical fungi. In this case, Schizophyllum commune or commune is a mushroom, a fungus that has a weird property. A, it has 23,000 distinct sexes. Nobody chose that. Too weird. <laughs> B, it is carnivorous and eats rats and frogs. Allie went with that. Or is it C, that uh, the single organism can live up to 50 years if left alone? This Is is this a fucking fake out where it's like other plants do this? But like all of these are true, but not for this plant. <gasps> Whoa. Now, now you're giving him <laughs> ideas for the next one. No, that's unacceptable did, by the see, laws of trivia. I did not give you a D or E, so yeah. are you prepared? I'm ready. Yeah. The correct answer is that this fungus has 23,328 <laughs> genetically distinct sexes. That's crazy. What does that mean? Listen, I really do my best to try to uncover... I only want plant trivia. From every episode from now on, the trivia will be about plants. All right. Starting (laughs) tomorrow, because again, this is a fungus, not a plant. They're different different (laughs) classifications, different kingdoms. You know what I'm saying? Like anything that grows out of the dirt, that's the trivia. Nature, mother nature trivia. I I really do my best for listeners to try to like find even the sciencey stuff, trying to break it down in layman's terms, trying to understand it and explain it. And I just could not do it. I don't understand what this means. I'm going to read a little bit 
snippet here from the site, the cited, you know, Wikipedia explanation. Okay. 23,000 distinct mating types, which is not exactly sexes, but in layman's terms, 23,000 sexes. Individuals of any mating type are compatible for mating with most other mating types. So this is what I don't understand. There's some genetic difference between these sexes, but all sexes can just mate with, can sexually reproduce with each other. So I don't understand why they are differentiated this way. <laughs> each mating type can enter fertile pairings with 22,960 others. So the combinations are slightly less than the total sexes. I do not understand how that works, but this is... Wow. That is ridiculous. And I think this is common in fungi, but like not to this level, like 23,000. That's why he's such a fun guy. That's right. <laughs> he's fucking That's everything every it. which way. Mushrooms, <laughs> mushrooms. Okay. That was really cool. I got really lost there at the end, but like I had a great time. Same. I love that. That's great. For the, after 267 million episodes, I enjoyed trivia today. <laughs> Correct. Finally did it. Well, now that we're all sexed up, um, <laughs> why don't we welcome our guest? <laughs> Our guests today are Rebecca Cronman and Andrew Rose from Plant Parenthood. Welcome, the two of you. Hi. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yeah. Could you tell us what Plant Parenthood is and what the two of you do for Plant Parenthood? So Plant Parenthood is a digital community that explores the intersection between family and psychedelics. So mainly what we do is we host digital gatherings of people in the psychedelic who are interested in the psychedelic space who are also trying to find each other. And those people might be parents. Sometimes they're not parents, but everybody's a child of a parent. So um, we're pretty inclusive as far as who our audience is. We're fostering community, community support because this is a kind of an unusual topic. It's a niche topic. And we want to help people find each other. We also do educational events as well around how people are using psychedelics within the family context. You know, sometimes people are concerned about children and psychedelics or how their children might might access or learn about psychedelics if they are themselves using it. So we host some educational events around that as well. And our main goal is to destigmatize this topic and make it one that people can feel safe to you know, be in community and disclose things to each other. What we understand about secrets and using substances in a secretive way is that it tends to make them be used in a less safe way. So our platform is intended to really expose topics that are typically taboo, even within the psychedelic community, and shed some light on them. That is pretty rad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell our listeners about your backgrounds and how you came together to create Plant Parenthood? So both work in the psychedelic space. Rebecca's a social worker, therapist. I'm a, more of an educator and uh, trained as a mindfulness teacher. We both do education for therapists and clinicians and how to work with psychedelics therapeutically. So you know some of your listeners are likely aware of just how much psychedelics are being used for treating mental health issues, whether it's PTSD, depression, anxiety, addiction. Substances like MDMA, psilocybin, uh, LSD, etc., are increasingly being sort of researched and used clinically to sort of treat mental health conditions. And so there's there's a you know a growing movement. Psychedelics are, have entered the or re-entered the mainstream. Um, we're also both parents, and uh, I, we actually connected at the beginning of the pandemic. Rebecca's based in in Brooklyn. I'm in Montreal in Canada. And oh, um, Canada, Canada, yeah, Canada, uh, we need you. Uh, yeah, are you going to take well, us in? <laughs> just in the sidebar, America's crumbling, and we are just trying to get some Canadians in our corner. Welcome at welcome at my house. How how are your rights? <laughs> Do you have them? We're all on the same burning rock here. Oh um, my god, my god, yeah, 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 yeah. The longest view. <laughs> anyway, continue with your answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Rebecca, and I, we actually we met during the pandemic. Uh, we both do. We both work for an organization called Fluence that does training for therapists, people who are trained as like psychologists or psychotherapists who uh, want to get training with psychedelics in terms of how to use them therapeutically. Uh, I had heard about an event that Rebecca had done 
for parents. I'm a parent myself. Um, and we just sort of got to chatting and then that led to us doing more events together. And over the last couple of years, it blossomed into a, a more digital thing that we, we do uh, as a duo and, and host these integration circles. So as Rebecca was saying, these are events where, you know, folks sign up and they come and they they tell their stories. A lot of them are parents of either some, some of them are parents of young children, some of them are parents of teenagers, um, some of them are aspiring parents. Really, um, it's anyone who has like an interest in psychedelics, who has used them and maybe has seen a lot of benefits and has no one to talk to about it or is thinking about doing it. But like there's there are a lot of different stories. The goal is to really kind of bring the conversations out of the shadows because we need as much healthy transparent community support uh, as we can get as a species. And we think a lot and talk a lot about mental health in a sort of in an individualized context when someone's suffering. And you see there's a lot of conversation happening, you know, in the psychedelic space more broadly in the sort of sense of communities and groups. But we see You see less conversations happening around contexts of family. And that's really where a lot of the sticky stuff tends to happen where trauma happens, where, 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 and where things cannot, where a lot of healing can happen too, if there's enough sort of safety and intention around that. So we're just, we're trying to facilitate and move that conversation forward. How did you guys decide to go down the psychedelic path? The funny thing is we probably don't have, in our particular uh, listenership, we probably don't have too many skeptics, but (laughs) you know, what, what would you say, you know, what brought you there? What's the value of the psychedelic path? Well, one thing that is interesting that I learned more about when I got into the space is that cannabis is considered a psychedelic. So a lot of your listeners probably are already on the psychedelic path. And Gateway drug. Knew it. Dare was right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I prefer calling it the devil's lettuce. Personally, that's just me. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and we kind of understand why that is, is because it, increases the the breadth of perception it, it allows us access to certain parts of the brain that we don't typically have access to and you know i think one thing that led a, led probably both of us down this particular path within psychedelics is understanding how there were so many people using these substances not in spite of the fact that they had children but in order to be a better parent in order to heal things within themselves that, you know, would allow them to show up without the same kind of wounding, without the same repetition of trauma and generational passing down of, of patterns that can be so harmful within families. You know, both of us kind of came to this space in, in different ways. And, but wh- one thing that became really clear to us was when we started opening, opening the door of this conversation, which for me kind of was opened more around cannabis. And it was it's kind of shocking to me how many people came, you know, came to me because they knew I was doing this work or opened up because I shared with them that I was doing this work and said, I am such an amazing parent when I'm using cannabis around my children and I can access my tools. I can access the parts of myself that feel so stuck and hidden that are so valuable to being a parent because of these medicines, not in spite of them the natural kind of comparison is something like alcohol, where there's just not that many people who who have shared or with us or with anybody that there's so much of a better parent when they're when they're drinking, or especially the day after they're drinking. And that's just not the case with these substances. Well, first of all, how many kids do each of you have? And what are the things that you find you connect better with your kids around when you are on mind altering substance? Well, I've got two boys, 13-year-old and a 9-year-old. They're very different. The second question assumes a, a few things. Um, and I want to I sort of convey that there are folks who are sort of part of the community who like have a story similar to what Rebecca may have said. You know, there, there are others who, um, you know, come to us because like they have a relationship with psychedelics and they, they really do don't know if it's okay to like to say microdose or something like that around their kids or they there there's stigma around it and they want to have conversations around that so there's really a wide spectrum of of scenarios i actually don't really use psychedelics around 
my kids, I'm sure there have been moments where there's there may have been like some small doses that have sort of weaved their ways in there. And I'm not really a, a cannabis user, so I, I, I can't speak to that. But I can I can say like more broadly, like the idea is not so much that it's like your mind, your consciousness is altered and then it's not, right? These are tools that can help us kind of loosen or tighten the knobs of our sort of bodies and our being and our nervous system in different ways and that can help us connect. So you know, an experience on the weekend by yourself could potentially uh, lead to you feeling that much more open and vulnerable and raw, like the next day, you know, and you see your kids a day after that or two days after that, and you're more, more receptive, more potentially more patient, or you're more, you know, you're more aware of their emotional state and their space. Like really what it, what it does is it opens us up or it creates an opportunity to like loosen a lot of habits that we have in terms of our day to day. Now, sometimes those habits are necessary and essential and useful, and sometimes they're less less adaptive. Sometimes we're using them to cope, and they're actually getting more and more entrenched and not helpful. You know, a lot of folks like get the engine revving in the morning by drinking a lot of coffee, and then wind down by maybe like drinking a little bit too much booze at the end of the day, and then they rinse and repeat, and like that's a rough cycle to, to run through. How present are you able to be for your kids or, you know, on either ends of that day? There are a lot of folks who will tell you that they've, you know, had success in altering their consciousness or just, or just shaking things loose a little bit in a way that's like helpful for them and feels, feels healthy, feels intuitive, feels more imbalanced and creates an opportunity for them to be able to sort of connect with, you know, loved ones in a way that's like meaningful. So let's dive into the community that you've created. So we'd love for our listeners to know the nitty gritty of what you do, how many people are involved, how they find you, how they help each other. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So we, I mean, we mainly are operating on social media because, of, you know, we're, we're both in two different countries. So in person has been harder, but that's something that we would love to do in the future because it is so different. When we're writing, we're writing for different publications in the psychedelic space, typically. Um, but we were also you know, featured in a publication, Heartburst Bazaar, on an article on what was called Mommies Who Mushrooms. You know, we we gather on Zoom, and we have a, you know groups of varying sizes, but we typically are under twenty people, which is good because we're giving people enough time to speak and be heard and have parts of their stories shared. And we do this integration circle where the diversity in the groups is flooring to me. We have people from all over the country in Canada. And and I mean, all over the country. I'm not talking about just like the Bay Area and Brooklyn. Like it's (laughs) really, it's very geographically diverse. Um, We have people, different races, different religions. We have people who are coming from uh, religious backgrounds that are more conservative and restrictive around substances. And so they're sort of in this process of moving out of their communities and trying to find each other. Typically, we have people who have children, but we also have had grandparents attend our group. We've had people who are thinking about having children and they just wanted a space to be talking about these substances. I don't think that one group has passed where I have not shed some tears and, you know, I'm a crier. So that makes sense. But it's so deeply moving these spaces because you're watching people who you are, you can see that they're talking about something that they can't talk about with anybody else in their community. And that's painful. The isolation of feeling like you're the only one going through this experience, the isolation of feeling like because you went through this experience, you can no longer relate to the people around you. And we really are like in real time watching people find each other, which has been so gratifying and moving to just, you know, see that play out. Yeah, shit gets it gets real uh, every time, like without without question. You know, a lot of people come to the groups because they're, they're looking for support with something hard and something hard in the context of their family. And you know, one of the reasons it gets emotional too is just because of how unnecessary a lot of the suffering is and how inadequate a lot of other tools people have, you know, at their disposal are, or that they just, that they don't have access to, you know, like conventional 
conventional healthcare and mental health care and, and community support, these things that should just be like basic and obvious, like being validated by your by your parents, you know, or by your by your community that this mushroom or this plant can really make things make things easier. And I'm not and that's not like a blanket statement at all. Like we're very sort of balanced and I'm not evangelical, like everyone should do psychedelics and there's no risks. It's not that's not the case. But man, there is just like there's so many ways that people are suffering and so many shitty solutions to it out there. And there's some very simple, basic, easy ones that folks don't have access to. And, you know, that comes to the surface a lot in our circles where it's like, oh, wow, I had no idea that this was available to me and that there is this kind of and that this was okay. Have you heard from members of the community about some of the ways that they have been connecting or witnessed some of the ways that they've helped each other and made like deep connections through this site or platform? We try and also like maintain some anonymity too. And just like for safety reasons, right? So it's not, we're not like keeping tabs on each other necessarily. And folks are, you know, they come in and we don't sort of collect, people are free to offer as much about their lives as they like or are comfortable with. But I, you know, I've certainly observed on calls, like people being like, hey, I'm in, I'm in the same state, like, I didn't know you were there. And like having folks exchange information or let them know about like, maybe an ayahuasca community or something like that, that's nearby, like it, that happens pretty much once a call. The reality is, is that this is a very niche community, but it's a very necessary community. And the way we're putting it together, we understand that it is actually an imperfect solution. What would be more ideal is if people were sitting down in person, looking at each other face to face. Um, Zoom is, to me, it's not a preferred medium. It's not actually a medium of real deep connection. These are substances that often help people understand what it really means to connect with others. You know, there's a psychedelic umbrella, which is really broad, and it encompasses a lot of different substances, a lot of different types of communities. So connecting around psychedelics doesn't didn't feel like enough. And so one of the things that we thought about is like, if I went to an integration circle with my local psychedelic society... I think that would be great. And I would really get a lot out of it. But it would be weird for me to be talking about, you know, the challenges of changing diapers, and then going to my, you know, my ceremony, like amongst a group of 22 year olds who, who don't have any children, like that just feels awkward. And the point of the group is to really have a deeper resonance. And there's other types of communities out there that exist around psychedelics and LGBTQ community psychedelics and people of color. So it's not about just finding each other around the substance itself or the substances themselves, but it's really about connecting on a more human level with the understanding that both of you are doing this type of work. So can you provide a little more detail on the circles themselves? Like what is the step-by-step process and how many people are in a circle? We tend to keep them relatively intimate, right? So mm-hmm. you know, they, they run around like 90 minutes or so, sometimes a little longer. And uh, we want to give an opportunity for everyone to, to speak and to, to connect. So tend to keep them under under 20 people. And really, like, what will happen is Rebecca and I will welcome everyone once they're all sort of online. I often will do like a brief guided meditation, just really short, something to sort of arrive and, and settle. We lay some some ground rules, which is basically just letting everyone know that it's a safe, confidential space, that sort of nothing leaves the circle, that you're, you know, you're free to share as much or as little as you like. We ask folks to, you know, be mindful of, of how much they're talking. If they're talking a lot, take up a lot of space, maybe stepping back a little bit. And, and conversely, if, you know, if they're being sort of quiet, you know, challenging themselves to, to share because they're, you know, you tend to get more out of it when you do. And then we just kind of open it up to have people tell their stories. And it's amazing. It, it just takes on a life of its own relatively quickly. Rebecca and I will occasionally offer some educational touch point if there are questions, especially around, you know, harm reduction, safety stuff. 
or offer some kind of like therapeutic framing or let people know what's happening with like research or in the broader psychedelic space. But mostly it's it's just about sharing stories and connecting. And I just want to pick up on this concept that Andrew was just speaking about, which is harm reduction. So both of us are working in that modality. And what that means in essence is that we're not prescribing these substances to anybody. We're not saying this would be helpful to you. That would be helpful to you. We think that you should try psilocybin. We think you should try MDMA. That's not it at all. So it's really about supporting the person's internal sense of what feels like the right path of healing for them. And there are times when actually the path of healing for them does not involve any substances at all. It might involve a different type of non-ordinary state of consciousness, like breath work or you know, a meditative state. But we are not there to, to direct people or give them advice. We're just really there to hold a safe space for them to be able to disclose something that's, that they're interested in or that, they, that they've tried. And, you know, it, it's, it's incredible to kind of watch what happens sometimes like in the group when someone does disclose something that is a little more fringe. There's a process of being held and being witnessed in that and being, you know, kind of understood with this really compassionate lens. So I'll give an example here. There are people who come to the group who are dabbling with the idea of, of giving their children psychedelics. And that might seem shocking on the surface, but I think what is really important to understand is that there, these are people who have accessed lots and lots and lots of different modalities for for healing for their child. So there may be a situation where they're neurodivergent. There may be a situation where the child is dealing with, you know, attention difficulties or difficulties in school, social, social difficulties. People have exercised a lot of different avenues and they don't want to see their child suffer. For them to be able to come to a space like this and disclose, hey, I'm thinking about this and getting received warmly, that in itself is just enormously healing. And it allows the conversation to unfold instead of me thinking of this idea in my own mind and not sharing it with anybody else and not getting that feedback that I really need in order to make a thoroughly conscientious decision. If a parent were to take that to a quote unquote, like normal psychiatrist, therapist, is there an obligation for that person to advise against it? I think that's a really emergent question. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing that we've seen, unfortunately, quite a bit in the groups is that even someone who's accessing legal means of, you know, using certain types of substances for their children or around their children, they will encounter some level of, you know, interface with the legal system or, or, or the child protective system. And so, you know, one thing that we are really aware of is that it's not safe for everybody to go to their provider and say, I'm interested in using this substance that has a lot to do with education. Andrew and I are really with this company that's on the forefront of educating mental health providers about profiles of these substances and the interactions, but that's brand spanking new. Like that's, that's not um, a space that the vast majority of Western medical providers know very much about at all. We're seeing a mixed bag where some providers are supportive of it and can give a little bit of education around it and understand where there's counteractions with other substances or with other prescribed medications. And then we're seeing other places where it's a disaster. And not to mention that, you know, this is also a function of privilege. So both of us operate in ways where our bodies, our, our behaviors are not disproportionately monitored because both of us are white. So we can go out and be spokespeople for, for this particular topic without much backlash or recourse, but other people can't and other people, their communities are disproportionately monitored when they go to the doctor, they're disproportionately monitored. This comes up a lot around the idea of disclosure that there's a lot of chatter in the psychedelic community about it's so important for you to disclose where we believe that 
actually, it's not safe for everybody to disclose. And that's a very individual decision that someone has to make based on their level of of privilege and and their and their sort of risk profile and just like how much propaganda and misinformation that's left over you know from the drug war is still out there like i I think part of what we do also is just like educate about the broader context so yes there are there's a lot more research to come to do to establish the sort of efficacy and safety potentially of uh, certain substances um, using them with children you know, the MDMA for PTSD research that MAPS is doing will eventually be required as they get through phase three approval will be required to do testing on adolescents. So that stuff is in the pipeline. And, you know, again, we don't hold a position one way or the other that this is or isn't safe, you know, we'll defer to the state of the research. But then, you know, if you think about it in the broader context, and the kinds of medications and substances that are prescribed, I mean, Kids are like very young are given SSRIs, they're given they're given ADHD medication, which is basically methamphetamine. You call a drug one thing when the drug drug company says it's okay to give it to your kid. You call it another thing when someone who looks a certain way uh, uses it uh, recreationally uh, on the weekend. Um, there's a lot of double standards and a lot of misinformation that's still out there. So the, the conversation around psychedelics and harm reduction is really just as, is situated in a broader conversation around drug policy. All of that is so fascinating to me. And I have been thinking a lot about that distinction between like what is medicine versus what is like drugs, you know, and it's like really just how we label it. Sure. Have you read the book Love Drugs yet? Mm -mm. It's written by two ethicists and it was so fascinating. So I'm just going to throw that out there for you and our listeners. (laughs) Interesting read. But yeah, so I guess pivoting slightly, what are the ways that the parents involved are now supporting each other, possibly outside of these circles? Well, I think, you know, that's a piece that we're frankly not super aware of. Well, for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of, one of those reasons is because we don't have a mechanism of sort of tracking what's happening with the connections outside of these circles. One of the pieces uh, that we hope that is carried forward from the circles and from our work is in the conversations with children. So, you know, you just mentioned... Ali, this idea of do you call it a, a medicine or do you call it a substance or do you call it a drug? Something that we're really interested in is how parents have these conversations with their own children. The education that children receive in schools is it's either inaccurate on purpose or inaccurate because there's just sort of like a dearth of information out there that's you know, (laughs) helpful to people in understanding this. We hope that we're helping people come up with better language to have these conversations and a better framework for how to explain what these substances do to you. Andrew had mentioned previously thinking about coffee and alcohol. We also think about sugar and screens and all of these are kind of inputs into our body that sometimes get out of hand. And some of them have a a legal stamp of approval on them. They're fine for everybody to use, despite the fact that they are actually can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, alcohol, we all know somebody who's been harmed by alcohol. Most of us have been harmed by alcohol. Not to say, again, that psychedelics are substances that cannot harm us. Of course they can. But when we think about what gets the legal stamp of approval, what gets the FDA approval, and what doesn't, as Andrew mentioned, there's a lot of double standard. There's a lot of misinformation. And so we're hopeful that part of our work is in helping people shape these conversations within their families. I find it really frustrating how easy it is for my 13-year-old to go and buy candy and soda at the corner store. You know, like I know what that stuff, I know what that stuff does to him. I'm like very sensitive to caffeine and sugar to the point that my friends were like, I wish that Lindsay would start doing edibles so that we could all relax because when she's on caffeine, it's like a literal, the Energizer Bunny is literally just jumping around all of us. So my friends were all very grateful when I started doing pot in my 30s. 
<laughs> regularly. Well, congrats on finding the substance that works for you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so much. I can't wait to yeah. find more substances that work for me. <laughs> yeah. And I like, co- you know, I like caffeine. I like, I like coffee and it's not to disparage or, or privilege psychedelics either. You know, it's, it's all about dose. It's about the purity of the substance and where you're getting it and how educated you are around like how, how you use it. Yeah. I also liked what you were saying about helping parents just have conversations with their kids about it, because I remember in college, one of my friends told me that she wrote an essay for D.A.R.E. and showed it to her mom. And her mom was like, oh, honey, we really love this. And my friend thought she was going to win. You know, she was like nine. She was like, I'm going to win this essay contest. Later, she she showed us what she wrote and she was like, you should never do drugs unless you're with people that you love and trust. And you should likely start with marijuana and make sure whoever you're with has already tried it. And it was like a, basically an essay on how you should actually introduce yourself to things you haven't done before. But it was very funny that she submitted it to the D.A.R.E. essay contest. <laughs> it was it was it was very accurate, but it was hilarious because she was nine. Imagine the, if that program had spent a couple of generations actually educating kids and parents about Real drug safety. You live and, in a fantasy world, yeah, sir. Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, <laughs> I said imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd like to join you. I also think they spent too much time, like, trying to scare you away from drugs that aren't that bad. You know what I mean? Like, if you were like, yo, let's bring in a recovering heroin addict to talk to kids and let them know how bad heroin is, then we would all be like, okay, let's stay away from heroin. <laughs> you know, but like, I just don't think that alcohol and marijuana are so different that one of them needs to be a drug that imprisons people and one of them is easily accessible at the grocery store. Well, weed has been so normalized in California that I do view it in the same way as alcohol now. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, I don't think of it as a drug anymore at all. And it's kind of wild that, like, people are still in prison for it. Right. Yeah. So as we wrap up, And you've touched upon this, of course, but I know you also mentioned like meeting people where they're at, right? Like if you're in your 40s with kids doing psychedelics with a bunch of 20 year olds, it's annoying. So because I've been there. (laughs) What do you think are the specific benefits for parenting? It's going to be different for everyone. I think the having some intentional time that you spend to sort of open up your system like open up your nervous system, like open up your day-to-day like habits and let that relax a little bit so that you can really take stock of what's going on and what's important to you. And then maybe like reassemble and reconfigure is beneficial to everyone, parents especially because we get pulled into like a day-to-day grind and hustle so quickly. And like you're forced into that habitual way of coping that it, it, it gets easy to forget to just like stop and breathe. Doing that in a constructive container and connecting with others who are going through something similar is also a, a key component. If you, if you do it in a vacuum, you, you might find that you're just, you're, you're taking things apart and then just putting them back together in a, in a different but equally unhelpful way. So that's one of the reasons we're here. I think you were mentioning, Lindsay, like if you had had access to someone who was using heroin and you could see what the impact was for them, then maybe, you know, that would be a sort of like a scare tactic in some way. And one of the concepts that we kind of lean on a a bit is this idea of psychedelic exceptionalism, that we want to avoid that because, you know, we're all using some tool to bypass the pain of living in this world. And that might be shopping too much. That might be being on Instagram too much. It might be using alcohol or or other substances that are available to us. When we think about how, you know, we use these substances with our kids, I think one of the tools that it allows us so much access to is just opening up a space of compassion for ourselves as people who use substances which ties us to other people who use different substances. And really, like, is there such a difference? I mean, there's a difference in legal status, sure. There might be a difference in how it impacts the body, but it's all a way of coping with pain. These are often, not always, but often tools for helping us access really painful 
places in our psyches, places where we contain shame, places where we are holding on to like generational patterns. And when we can soothe that in ourselves, we can show up as better parents. Another thing that it allows us to do is it allows us to inhabit a more playful, sometimes joyful world, uh, imaginative world. And for those of us with younger children, my kids are five and eight, and you know they're actually growing out of that stage of like the wild imaginative things that they that they conceive of. But they're still in it sometimes, and and psychedelics can help us inhabit that space too. We can be in their world a little bit more. How much more delightful would this would this world be if we if we all could do that a little bit more? I love that. Well. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and being a bright spot in a crumbling world. Oh, dear. Yeah. Sorry, couldn't offer more. Thank you for having us. Doing our best. Can everyone just feel my optimism today? Anyway. Uh, no, it's it's been great to have you, and we're excited for more people to start experimenting in this way, or yeah. just connecting with just connecting with other people who are going yeah. through the, the yeah. same thing. You know, it's not it's not always about finding a, a solution to the problem. Sometimes it's just about holding the you know, brokenness of the situation like together. Yeah, I love that. I may or may not have experimented with mushrooms, so I'm ready to be a parent. <laughs> Great. That's, that is how that works. Great. Well, I've also experimented, and I'm not ready. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. In the course of this show, you've become uh, licensed medical doctors, you've become lawyers, and now through the sh- power of shrooms, you're parents. ready to uh, to be parents. I think it's great. Oh my gosh. We've, and last Stop week. Stop pressuring me. Oh, <laughs> last week we were lawyers as well. So yeah, yeah. We're, get, we're just really racking up all them degrees. Y'all went to Yale, but truly this was the place where you're getting the real education. It's true. I mean, maybe, honestly. <laughs> anyway, our guests were lovely. I, I do think it's so fascinating that there's the stigma. I get it. But like the fact that it's just the things we've chosen to stigmatize versus not stigmatize is always amusing. Yeah. It is definitely stigma, but it's also that we're waiting for medicine and science to kind of pay attention and catch up. Because like, if those were valuable substances for me or my family, then I would like to approach them with a doctor's guidance. Yeah. But that doesn't exist because it hasn't been studied enough. So- you're fucking out on your own. Well, Hopkins is doing a big step. They put a t- they put millions of dollars into psychedelic research uh, pretty recently. So I'm excited about that. Um, but I also just think across the board, we're stigmatizing the wrong things. You know, like we stigmatize people for race and gender. And I think we should be stigmatizing them for stupidity. I think people mm-hmm. should be stigmatized for being stupid. You heard mm-hmm. it here. Yeah. Yeah. Because, okay. um, you know, or people who like believe in QAnon, you know, I'm over it. They should be stigmatized. You know, it's just, I can't. They think you should be stigmatized for believing that the earth is round. So I, know, I think we should just have less stigmatization. I think that I everyone should just be able to be who they are and as dumb and weird as they want to be. And just don't worry about other people's dumb weirdness. Like, if your thing is to be upset at other people, that should be stigmatized. That only works if ever if those people stop talking yeah. or voting. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I feel. That's how I feel. <laughs> All right, Dang. Ed is with, with me in the pessimism today. <laughs> Way to hold down the fort, though, Lindsay. Someone's gotta. You know? Well, I, I do think... So, okay, we were talking about how medicine hasn't caught up, but I think it's you know, politics and big money like that is actually preventing these things because mm-hmm. I have to look it up. I'll bring it back next week. And if I if you don't remind me, that's your fault. But I do think there, there were studies that like sounds like victim blaming <laughs> LSD was being used to get people out of their alcoholism and stuff. There were studies like that mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s. And then people started recreationally using it. So it got nixed by politics. And same for like MDMA, I think it was being used as like a therapeutic Oh, it's been amazing for PTSD. Yeah, for Mm. PTSD, but also like family therapy, couples therapy, because the habits that you normally are in when you are disagreeing with your family, with your mom, your dad, your brother, sister, or your partner, 
you fall out of those like established habits and you start speaking in a more like open and just like a different way that you can connect more. I know. I kind of want to do drugs with my parents. Is that a bad idea? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I've talked about it before. I want to do drugs with my mom so badly. I would do it with my dad, but I think both of us would be so uncomfortable. It actually wouldn't be fun. (laughs) My parents were coming to town and I'm like, do we do shrooms? I don't know. Maybe. 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 (laughs) We could see a show or do shrooms. What do you think? (laughs) I'm in both. They're here for a whole week. Do you want to go to Moulin Rouge or do you want to do MDMA? Yeah. (laughs) Actually, they mentioned Moulin Rouge, but I really don't want to go see that. Anyway. um, Well, if you are a psychedelic single, I'm at Allie underscore Goldie across social media platforms. And Lindsay is at the Lindsay Life across social media platforms. Lindsay with an E. Um, If you spell it with an A, you're going to find somebody else. (laughs) Okay, you can also call us. That number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6548. You can also email us, 2G1podcast at gmail.com. You can join our Discord, discord.gg slash 2G1P. Love the chats going down there. We're on Facebook, technically, Two Girls, One Podcast on Facebook. And please, please, please visit patreon.com slash 2G1P. Any amount is really helpful. You know, I am podcasting from my closet. Uh, Also, a recession is coming. Anyway, uh, cool, 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 cool. Oh, yeah. Leave us a review on Apple. And I think you can now leave reviews on Spotify. So feel free. Well, thank you all. We really couldn't or wouldn't be doing this without you. So thank you and heart your faces. Bye. One podcast is hosted by Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford and best consumed in micro doses. I mean, produced by Matt Silverman in New York City. This episode was edited by Abital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Please?